the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know by now, every weekday at 4 o'clock, we're here on AM 630, The Word, to take your phone calls and answer your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about our faith, what we believe and why we believe it. Maybe it's a question about something that you're going through. We'll do the best that we can to answer your questions. To get it answered, you need only to call 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free outside of the local area at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. I tell you every day that if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday and we're back on schedule, I declared yesterday officially back to normal day, national back to normal day. So we're back on schedule. Tonight we'll be having our Old Testament Bible study here at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be finishing 1 Samuel chapter 31, finishing the book actually. And then next week we're going to go right ahead into 2 Samuel. Uh, But tonight's a serious topic. In addition to teaching the passage of Scripture, uh, I'm going to be talking about suicide. Uh, In the passage, Saul takes his own life. Um, This is an issue that most people would rather just ignore, but uh, we just can't ignore it when it comes up. You've got to tease it. So we're going to be talking about suicide tonight. So many people have been hurt, so desperately hurt. Uh, by the selfish acts of people that take their own lives and uh, even Christians at times in the middle of really difficult things they'll wonder, well, if I killed myself when I go to heaven, we're going to talk about all those things tonight in the in the context using the platform that Saul provides us at the end of First Samuel chapter 31. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch it live stream at calvaryessay.com if you are so inclined. And then, of course, the best announcement of any Wednesday is that tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with me for the day day edition of the program. So ladies, it's a day that we set aside uh, especially for you if you have any questions or need any encouragement. Uh, I'm always as interested as you are to find out what Paula wants to talk about on any particular day. So uh, that is tomorrow here on the day day edition of the program. One more time. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Our first question sent in was to our email inbox from John. And he says, who are the elect in 2 Timothy 2.10? Are they not Christians? Paul seems to refer to the elect as people who can potentially be saved rather than those who are already saved. Let me read the passage that you're talking about. Um, He says in chapter 2, 2 Timothy. Remember, this is Paul's final letter. By far his most personal. This is a letter that he writes to Timothy. He knows now that he's going to to die. Uh, It's time to pass the baton. And so everything he says in 2 Timothy has added importance, added urgency. 
And so he says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may too obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, just prior to that, um, his context has been suffering. Um, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. And that's why he then goes into the therefore. You know, I always tell the church, whenever you say therefore, find out what it's there for. It connects with the previous verses, not the verses that come past it, but the previous verses. And he, he says, even though I'm suffering, and even though I'm chained like a criminal, and even though there are people who are trying, uh, as they might, to, to, to undermine my ministry, I endure it all for the sake of the elect. He's talking about those who are Christians or those who, by virtue of God's foreknowledge, um, God knows they're going to be Christians. So Paul says, I'm going to, as long as I have any strength in this body, as long as I have a pen, as long as I have an audience, I'm going to endure whatever comes my way. You know, what's interesting uh, about this particular um, question, John, is that uh, Peter goes through pretty much the same thing. And when he goes through it, he's talking about enduring suffering. Don't, don't, uh, respond to suffering as though it were something that was strange that was happening to you. And, and the apostles, those who went before us, those giants of our faith, they endured enormous persecution. There were times Paul would say, writing to the Corinthians, that he would despair even of life. In other words, there were days where it was more likely, at least the appearance of things made it seem more likely that he would die as opposed to live. Uh, they were all beaten. They were all objects of intense persecution. But they endured it. And when I say they endured it, they learned not to enjoy it. That would be silly. But they in, learned to, to embrace those sufferings because they knew the rewards that would be waiting for them in heaven as a result. So what he's saying is, I endure everything for the sake of those who are his if I get a chance to preach one more message, if I get a chance to instruct one more church, or, or perhaps I get to talk to one more person who's not yet saved and they receive the message and get saved, all of that makes enduring the suffering bearable. One of the things, I just talked to our church about this, this past Sunday. As we enter a new year, we've got to get to the place where we expect suffering. Again, not to enjoy it. It's not some masochistic wish that we have. But it's just a part of life. Everybody suffers. Everybody goes through pain. And we who are Christians are the best prepared and the best equipped to deal with it. So it's very important that we have a balanced view of what suffering is. And Paul says, if in my suffering one more person gets saved, it's worth it. So, John, that's the answer to the question. I hope that uh, satisfies. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question. This one is from our mobile app from Kirby. Uh, Kirby says, do you think that Gabriel will herald Jesus' return to earth? Um, no, I don't, uh, Kirby. Um, Gabriel is... In my view now, this is just my view, he is the archangel in heaven with the best job. Every time he opens his mouth, it's Jesus that he's announcing or proclaiming. Um, but in this particular case, remember, if he was coming here, then it would be Gabriel. But we're going there. When Jesus returns for his church, now remember, he's not returning to earth. He's going to come and we're going to meet him in the air. The trumpet will sound, not a literal trumpet, but the trumpet call of God that will be distinguishable and discernible to every believer all over the world. Uh, it'll be something the, the rest of the world won't be able to hear, but we who are believers will. And instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be with him. Think about that moment for a moment. Just think about it. I, I don't know if there will be even a nanosecond between hearing the call and going, 
I, I don't know whether we'll feel anything or there'll be a sense of anticipation that this is about to happen. But here's what I know. He's going to call us. He'll say, as he did to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 4, come up here. And John and the Spirit went. That's a picture of the rapture of the church. And so when that happens, it won't be the angel Gabriel who is making that declaration. Um, when he comes in judgment, uh, he won't. Uh, it won't be Gabriel either, although... Uh, Gabriel will be with him, so too will we. He'll bring his reward, his inheritance with him, that's us. But remember, the sky is going to open and Jesus is going to return with the minions of heaven. He's going to return with myriads and myriads of his inheritance and his holy angels. So when that sky opens, there's not that'll be all of the heralding that, that um, um, Jesus needs uh, in his second um, return to earth. So when he comes the next time to earth, he'll set his feet on the Mount of Olives, but before that, every eye will see, every ear will hear. It'll be a supernatural event, and he will come to set things on this earth right, and we will be with him. Now, obviously, um, we're looking forward. The next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Nothing else needs to happen before Jesus calls us home. One of the reasons that we get so excited here at Calvary Chapel about people when they get saved, and when they get saved every week, they'll come forward. We just keep thinking, Lord, this could be the last one, and I keep kind of waiting for that trumpet call of God. hasn't happened yet, but it could happen at any moment. When that happens, then the man that we call the Antichrist is going to uh, be unleashed on the world. Now, it's going to come seemingly with a whimper at first. He's going to be declared a man of peace, uh, a great conciliator. He's going to be considered um, um, the magazine, uh, Time Magazine's man of the forever. Uh, that's how profound his entrance is going to be. His ascension to prominence will be um, a startlingly quick. Um he will make a covenant. He will come up with a peace plan. And when Israel signs off on that covenant, from that moment, not the moment of the rapture, but from the moment of the signing of the covenant, we get this from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 and forward. When he signs the covenant, seven years is all that remains on this earth. And as you've heard me say on this program many times, it'll be the most difficult and painful seven years in the history of the world. We call it the Great Tribulation for a very, very good reason. So um, heralding will be done at that point. Prior to that point, um, we're the ones, Kirby, who are doing the heralding. So I hope that helps. Here is another question from our email inbox from Nacho. Is there any significance to Jesus giving up the role as the oldest son of the family and its expected role after Joseph's death? You know, Nacho, we don't have much information. In fact, we have zero information about Joseph's death. There isn't even any secular mention that we know. It's just that he is not on the scene. So we make the presumption that Joseph died uh, fairly early. We know he was older, maybe 15 years or so older than Mary. Uh, people died young then, so he went um, um, to paradise. Um, Jesus didn't give up the role as the oldest son. That was never his role. That role was sort of placed upon him by his brothers and sisters. And they would pressure Mary in turn. You remember, they went to get him one time. They thought he was out of his mind. Literally, they thought Jesus was crazy. And, and almost certainly... The, the, the primary emphasis was you're, you're not taking care of your family. Family comes first. We hear that from people even now. So family comes first. And uh, in this particular case, Jesus would say, as he did when he was 12 years old, remember that? I must be about my father's business. In other words, I don't have the role as the oldest son of the family because Joseph was not my father. I have to be about my father's business. And the one thing that we know about Jesus uh, for sure, is that he was always and only from the earliest mention when he was 12 for the rest of his days, he was only interested in doing the will of his Father in Heaven. And nothing could stop him. So 
Um, I don't know if that's the significance that you refer to, um, but Jesus endured uh, a lot of in-family persecution as a result of him not taking the traditional role of the oldest son who would then, in the in the case of a death of a father, would become the head of the household. He would be the one that would, would uh, be supposed to go to work and support the family, uh, to raise the younger siblings. Um, in the ancient world, people had to grow up very, very quickly. It's not like today where our children grow up and they leave the home finally at 19 or 20 years of age and then they go out for the world for a little while, and then they come back and live at home again. It wasn't that at all. Um, um, in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish culture, um, it was required that that oldest son take the responsibility of caring for his family. So uh, I don't know, not sure if that's what you mean by significance, but that is, in fact, um, the best way, I think, to explain it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Or toll free eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. Here is a question from Janet. Interesting question. Janet says, "If it is true that far more people are going to hell than heaven, doesn't that make God a moral monster?" Now, Janet, I'm going to assume that you're asking me this question as an unbeliever, but if you're listening to a Christian radio program. It seems to me to indicate that God is knocking on the door of your heart. Let me do the best I can to give you uh, an answer. First of all, we know that God can never be a moral monster because God is 100% pure, 100% holy, 100% just. Um, There's no sin nature. Um, We can't even imagine that coming from where we come from. Uh, It is true, by the way, that more people are going to hell than to heaven. Jesus himself said the road to uh, destruction, to hell, is wide and well-traveled. The road to salvation is narrow, and only a few find it. So relatively speaking, it's absolutely true. But it's impossible that God could be a moral monster. Now, here's what we have to understand. Janet, God is so holy. He's so holy that his standard for heaven is perfection. And mankind blew it from the Garden of Eden forward. Now, don't misunderstand, Janet. You don't get punished for Adam's sin. But we all inherited his sin nature. And because we sin, we're separated from God. John chapter 3, um, Jesus' most famous message to Nicodemus, he said that we're born condemned already. In other words, we're all doomed to sin because we have a sin nature that we inherited from our federal head, Adam. Now, here's the thing to understand, that by virtue of providing any way at all to heaven for those of us who are condemned, I mean, this is like a guy going to the death penalty and he's taking a walk to the electric chair, to the gas chamber, whatever they use now and somebody jumping right in front of the door before he goes to sit down in the electric chair and saying, no, kill me instead and absolve him of all sin. See, that's a moral gift. God owes us nothing because we all by nature are condemned. Now, the other part of this question to consider is that he provided a way for us those of us who are condemned were dead men walking and women. But the truth is, we can escape eternal judgment. And God made it really easy. He so loves us that he made it really, really simple. All we have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. Not believe about him, but believe in him. And if we believe in him, Janet, that means we understand who he is. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We repent of our sins and ask him to come into our heart. And by virtue of being born again, that's what being born again is. We have eternal life in heaven with Jesus, a life that we don't deserve. That's why it's called grace, unmerited favor. 
Now, the other part of your question that I want to consider momentarily is this one. Even though it's true more people are going to hell than heaven, what would you have God do? Refuse to let people be born? Now, God is powerful enough to do anything, but that would violate his nature. God delights in his creation. On the sixth day of creation, he saw Adam and said, this was perfect. This is the best thing I've ever done. And Janet, he still thinks that way when he thinks about you. You're the best thing he's ever done. People that aren't saved live rich lives sometimes. People that aren't saved make valuable contributions to the world that we live in. Priceless contributions. The Bible says that the sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. So it's not a fair question to say, well then, if God's a moral monster for letting this, people get born. He created a, a, a sexual act that recreates people. And the only response, if I see it, saw it from your perspective, that God simply wouldn't let people have sex or wouldn't let them conceive. But everybody who's born into sin has an opportunity, Janet, and you have that same opportunity. You can repent of your sins and ask Jesus to forgive you. He'll do it. He's eager to do it. Then you can say, Honestly, Jesus, I'm going to mess up again. I need your help. Come and take over my heart. And then you'll have to worry about questions like this because what's important isn't what the majority of people are going to do, Janet. What really matters is what you're going to do with what I just told you. We'll be praying for you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Greg. Greg says, uh, Pastor Ron, can you be a Christian and actively live a homosexual lifestyle? If you actively live a homosexual lifestyle and you are unrepentant, and by that I mean refuse to acknowledge that it is a sin against God who makes the rules, then you are not a Christian. It's that simple. So Greg, don't be confused by people who um, are gay and claim to be Christians. If you are a Christian and you live in sin, any kind of sin, whether it's living with somebody, having sex with somebody you're not married to heterosexually or homosexually um, or any other kind of willful, defiant sin, well, that points you out as not being a Christian at all. And so when we see people say, well, I'm a gay Christian and I think... Um, the church ought to welcome me and my partner. Um, those are people who don't know God at all. They know about him, obviously, because they use his name, but they don't know him. Now, here's what we have to understand, Greg. God is an expert in changing who we are. Now, I, I want to be clear. That doesn't mean that he's going to take somebody who is homosexual or, or, or only same-sex attracted and suddenly change and they're going to be attracted to the opposite sex, although that does happen and it happens way more frequently than the homosexual activists would have you believe. Uh, that's not the case. What God is asking a gay man or woman to do um, to come to him is to make a choice between the lust of their flesh and their desire to be with Jesus. But imagine the arrogance, Greg. Imagine the arrogance of somebody saying, God, I want to come to heaven. I want to be a Christian, but I demand you accept me on my terms. That's impossible. So it's simply not possible. The people who are supporting, advocating a gay lifestyle, who claim to be Christians, and there are many, they don't know Jesus Christ. They're not born again. We have to be transformed from people that rebel against God into people who serve God. Now, that transformation can happen quickly. For some people, it happens slowly. But here's the key. If somebody is struggling with their sin, 
then they're probably Christians, real Christians, and God's going to win that wrestling match. But the person who sins, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians chapter 5, that people who live like this as a normal lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, um, homosexuality is just one of the sins in that list. But, Greg, it is just not possible to, to be a Christian and actively live a homosexual lifestyle and demand that God's okay with it. Imagine telling God, well, you made me this way. He would say, no, I didn't. I made you in my image. Now, last thought before we come up against the break. Imagine for a moment standing before God and saying, you made me this way. You expect me to be single, live alone. God would say, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always. So, Greg, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. we got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. You know what? The program is always more interesting when you call rather than just listen to me drone on and on. Ron, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Valerie. Interesting question, Valerie. Should church finance details be available to anyone who asks? Um, Yes and no. Now, I'm not waffling here. Let me explain. I think church finance details should be available to every contributing member of any church. Uh, If somebody came to me and said, I want to know, I give to this church or this is my church, and I want to know how much money you make, uh, I would tell them. Um, I think that kind of transparency is important. To that end, Valerie, at our church, in fact, we'll have it the last Sunday of February, uh, the last Sunday, we do it in the evening at 6 o'clock. Um, every year is when we we do our business meeting, and we, we talk about this amount of money that came in, and this is what we spent and where we spend it. Um, we give updates on the church. We answer questions from people, anybody who's new, want to know anything about finances or church government or uh, the direction the church is going, things like that. And we try to be as open as we possibly can. So uh, I think uh, in that sense, the answer should be yes. Now, um, um, when I said no, uh, it's because the way you phrase the question to anyone who asks, I, I would not share that information with somebody who walked in off the streets and said, saying, you know, you're a Christian church and you're a nonprofit. I want to, I demand to see um, how you spend your money and, and, and um, how much money comes in, those kind of things. I would tell them, this is a family. You're not part of the family. Um, and it's not because there's anything to hide, because certainly our church and the people here will get that information should they ask. Um, but uh, I think it's very, very um, pushy, arrogant for somebody who just wants to find a bone to pick with a church, a church that they don't have anything to do with, and uh, and and demand to see financial details. And by the way, that does happen from time to time. And I think the bigger and the more well-known the church is, the more often that kind of thing happens. And I just don't think those are details that you share uh, with anybody but your family. Can you imagine somebody who lives in your neighborhood that you, you hardly ever talk to come and say, I demand to know what you make and I demand to know what your bills are. And we would say, no, but um, we're a public entity. All churches are. And um, I think the information should always be available to those who are contributing members of the church. Now, one other thing, Valerie, here at Calvary Chapel, we don't have a formal membership. Oh, there just isn't anything in the Bible that that 
mandates a formal membership or even suggests the kind of formal membership that's um, that's evolved in our church culture. For somebody to say, uh, Pastor Ron, I want to be a member, and I say, okay, well, you got to promise never to leave. You got to promise to give me ten percent of your money. You got to you got to promise to live a holy life. You got to submit to our 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 discipline if necessary. Um, uh, that, that just doesn't make any sense at all. So, um, not formal membership, but somebody who's a contributing member of the body. Uh, I would show to, to anybody here that calls Calvary Chapel their church home. I would show our details, financial details, to anybody who asked, as long as they were part of this church body, uh, even if they themselves gave nothing at all. So um, I, I, I'm just personally convinced that that's um, our responsibility as a church. So uh, I don't know what your motive for asking the question is. I don't know whether maybe where you go to church, there's some things that seem to be out of order. But certainly, if you call it your church, Valerie, you have every right to go in and ask. Just make sure your heart is right. Um, make sure that there's no ulterior motive or agenda. Uh, and be very respectful when asking. Uh, if a church would not share the details with you, um, then perhaps I would be a little bit suspicious. I really would. So I hope that makes sense. Here is a question from Tom. Tom wants to know, is speaking in tongues for today? Uh, the answer, Tom, is yes, but not in the way that you read about it in Acts chapter 2 or in the early church in the book of Acts where uh, somebody was preaching and the Spirit of God fell upon them and they all began to speak in tongues and prophesy. That's not the gift of tongues that's for today. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, and then he talks about it in more detail in terms of applying it in 1 Corinthians 14, he says there is a gift of tongues. It's a vertical gift between man and God. It's a private prayer language. Um, uh, when when I use my gift of tongues, Tom, uh, I don't need an interpreter. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking by faith to God. Uh, he knows what I'm saying. In fact, it's a prayer that's come from his heart. We know it's a, a sort of a, an unction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the gift of tongues is for today. But it doesn't have a place um, in the church body unless there is an interpretation. Now, the reason that people ask this question, Tom, is because we go into churches, um, and, and this is a sad thing, uh, but we go into churches today and we'll see everybody speaking in tongues at one time, and it's utter nonsense. And, and, and people, when they go in, they know it's utter nonsense, and yet we try to convince them it isn't. There's no biblical mandate for these crazy charismatic churches, and we are a charismatic church. I personally have the gift of tongues. But there's just no place, a uh, biblical place, for the exercise of tongues in the assembly unless there is an interpreter. And then Paul even puts further restrictions that two or three at the most speak in tongues. But the original gift of speaking in tongues that was poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and then again through the book of Acts, um, those were sign gifts. And the sign was pointing to the one who sent the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus. Signs, when we're driving in our car, we see a sign that tells us which way to go. Well, the tongues were for a sign gift leading to Jesus Christ. And what we've done is we've taken that beautiful experience, never to be repeated, by the way. The book of Acts is never going to be repeated. Um, that was the initiation of, of the spirit of God's ministry on, on the earth. Um, um, there were sign gifts um, in other instances in the book of Acts uh, some years later. But the Holy Spirit would, would fall upon them, and there would be, in some cases, miracles, in other cases, prophecies. Um, and, and certainly the gift of tongues, um, but but they were they were signs validating the entrance of the Holy Spirit into those people's hearts. Now today, uh, when the gift of tongues is given, and it's it, it's such a good gift, I think personally everybody should receive it. Uh, I know everybody will not receive it, but I think everybody could receive it. Now we have to receive it by faith. 
And that sometimes when we bypass our intellect, doesn't mean it's an anti-intellectual gift, but we bypass our intellect and we understand by faith that we're talking just to God. We understand that this is a prayer that God is saying yes to. This is a prayer. We don't have to know what it is that God's put in our heart. In some cases, so we can say yes, sometimes in, in my personal gift, uh, I feel like I'm interceding for people. I don't know who. Um, uh, other times, I feel a real sense of urgency, and I know I'm battling a spiritual uh, war in spiritual warfare. Uh, most of the time, I'm just talking to Jesus. And I'm trusting by faith that if I don't understand, He does. Now, we pray for the gift of interpretation. Paul said that we should do that. But this is a beautiful gift that edifies the believer and only the believer, only the one using the gift. That's why this gift ought to be sought by everyone. I have people regularly tell me that, well, you know, I just don't want anything I don't understand. Well, well, you have to understand the giver of the gift loves you and he has a wonderful plan for you. He's completely trustworthy. So all we have to do it's given the opportunity to give us the gift. And then we step out in faith and we practice the gift. So, Tom, uh, it is for today, just not like the book of Acts, and unfortunately not like you see it abused in a whole bunch of churches um, in our church culture. Um, but, yeah, it's a great gift, and I would encourage you to pray for it and receive it by faith. Uh, Paul said, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than me, more than he does. So, yes, it's a great gift. Use it. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a call that was just called in to the, producer, or to the studio. Let's go first. We've got Ray holding on line one, then I'll get Rose's question. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thanks for taking my call, Pastor Ron. Happy New Year, both of you, thank you. and Paul. Thank you, Ray. Happy New Year um, to you. Thank you very much. Um, on this uh, speaking in tongues thing, um, it's it's always been a puzzlement for me, and uh, I was very leery of it for the simple reason where it was just a bunch of gibberish, and, and as you had mentioned. However, having been around you and hearing you expose the benefits of it and all, I've I've been praying for something, and... Other people have uh, also prayed, but um, it doesn't seem to be coming into fruition for whatever reason, probably my own fault. But how would, and, I've, and I'm, I have no evidence or proof that I have the gift of tongues, and I, I, I'm leery of, you know, maybe I just need more faith or whatever, but uh, I, I need more than uh, the the prayer that I've been working at. And, I, you know, as you say, well, just accept it as faith. And since it is private, one-to-one, you know, down and vertical, uh, how how would I know if I'm not just being foolish or if I am, you know, communing with God other than, and, and you've said many times, well, don't trust your feelings. Feelings are goofy. And so I, I don't know. I'm just. I'm just floundering, and uh, if you could shed any light on it, it, I'll listen on the radio. Thank you, Ray. Great question and very important question. You know, I think sometimes, Ray, um, I'm going to say this, and it's going to be maybe a little confusing. I don't think it's a more faith issue. I think it's a more trust issue. Now, faith is active trusting. However, the way I mean it is, that, that sometimes we're afraid to feel foolish, and I think you need to trust God with feeling foolish. So rather than, than worrying about whether or not it's gibberish, think, think about this. How much of our prayers in our own English language, prayers that we understand completely, how many of those prayers are gibberish? The fact that we understand them doesn't mean they're any less nonsensical, and they're certainly focused on our will instead of God's will. 
And, and we don't feel self-conscious about those prayers. I'm actually far more self-conscious when I find myself praying for something um, that, 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 that is my will. And, and you know, if I don't want to uh, hear God say no because it's not his will, um, to me, that's the height of foolishness. In your particular case, what I would suggest, two things. First, uh, I think the desire that God has put in your heart for this gift um, is an indication he wants to give it to you. So I think you've got to go to him and you say, Lord, I'm always worried about feeling foolish or, or speaking gibberish. I don't know whether it's from you or it's just me making it up. But I'm not going to worry about that anymore, Jesus, because I'm going to trust you. And I think that would put such a smile on his face. We've got to be honest and say, you know, and, and believe me, when you start speaking in tongues, every every person I've ever known who starts speaking in tongues, the first lie the enemy tells, oh, that's not from God. You're just making this up. You know, that's just nonsense. Uh, I think we have to not care about that. So open your heart. Say, God, I trust you. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Jesus, you said that the gifts of the Spirit are more valuable than any other thing that you could leave us. So I want all of them that you have for me and the gift of tongues, if it's going to make my prayer life more active, if it's going to, 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 to help me love you more, how could God not give it to you? Then you just have to accept it by faith. Now, here's what I mean by that, and this is the second point. Whenever God gives us a gift, we got to practice it. You know, I think sometimes we wait for some wave of force to overcome us and we can't help ourselves. That's not what speaking in tongues is all about. When I exercise the gift of tongues, Ray, uh, I can stop it and start it anytime I want. I'm in control of it. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not this ecstatic utterance that gives you goosebumps Sometimes you will have goosebumps, but that's not the point. The point is you got to take a step of faith and start speaking. Just let the noises come out of your mouth. And then trust that God is going to develop those, those noises into um, a prayer language. And we don't have to feel silly. We don't have to question ourselves when the enemy says, well, that's not you, or I mean, that's not God, that's just you making it up. Uh, just say, no, I'm, I want to talk to Jesus. I'm not interested in hearing from you. And just practice. And the more you practice, the easier it will come and the more natural it will seem. Uh, I have a prayer routine on Sundays when it's 30 degrees. I haven't been going out, but Sunday mornings when we go out and walk with the Lord, um, uh, there's one place I get to on my walk, and that's when I begin to speak in tongues. So it's not something that I can't help. It's something I'm eager to get to. And there's times when I feel like he's telling me, just ask something, and he wants to say yes. There's other times when I have no idea. But we've got to rely on him and stop worrying so much about ourself. Stop worrying so much about how it feels. And instead, trust that strange feeling to the Lord. So, Ray, please don't give up on it. It really is a great gift. It really is a great gift. Um, as I say often, anything that makes me closer to Jesus, I want it all. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Rose called into the studio and asked, what are your thoughts about casting out demons and rebuking Satan? A friend of mine attempted suicide after bullying. I grew up understanding that we were to pray and rebuke these things. I'm just not sure how to pray against this. Um, Rose, uh, rebuking um, and casting out demons, um, um, it, it, we're, we're so poorly taught in this area. Um, um, we, I've had demons that needed to be cast out of people, but it's never something that's fun. Um, it's not something anyone should look forward to. It is ugly. It is brutal. Uh, it actually smells bad. Sometimes it'll make you feel bad. Demons are way more powerful than us, and it takes all the strength that you have. Uh, if you find somebody with a demon in them, 
then then casting the demon out um, is something you do cautiously. Um, you you also do it calmly. You don't shout and scream and sweat and spit before you can cast a demon out. You've got to talk to the person the demon is inhabiting. Jesus said if a demon goes and he comes back and finds the house uninhabited, he'll bring back seven demons more powerful than himself. And the last situation is worse than it was before. So what I do, and God will give you the, the, the ability spiritually to do this, what I do is uh, I'll talk to the person. I'll look him right in the eye and talk to the person. The demon gets so angry. But I'll talk to the person. Are you ready to accept Jesus Christ? These demons will go, but but you've got to be ready to accept Jesus Christ. And if I don't get some sort of response, then I'm simply not going to do it. If I do get the response, then you don't yell again. You, you just, you just in the name and the authority of Jesus, you command them to go, and they will. Now, demons will lie to you. It's very important you understand that they're liars. Satan is the father of lies. The demons sort of report to him. So they will lie. Are you gone? And the person will say, yes, that's the demon. The voices will change. So that's casting out demons is different than rebuking them. Now, you've hit on a hot button with me with this idea of rebuking Satan. Uh, I'm sorry, Rose, that you grew up understanding that we were to rebuke these things. We have no power to rebuke anything. Jesus has that power. And Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit lives in us. So what we've got to do when we um, rebuke lies, spirits, whatever they are, we simply surrender to Jesus. Be with Jesus. Let him fight your fights. I said this in my Bible study, I think just this past Sunday. Um, I had a big brother. Hebrews calls Jesus our elder brother. I had a big brother who was uh, the same size at 11 years of age that he is all these many, many years later. Um, he was six foot tall, a little on the chubby side, big side. But he towered over me and all the other kids anywhere close to his age or mine. And I was a mouthy kid. And so I would mouth off. People would want to fight me. I'd say, well, you can fight me if you want to, but you've got to go through my big brother. Well, spiritually, that's infinitely more true. The enemy starts lying to me. I'm going to tell him to, to talk to Jesus. I don't want to even talk to the devil. Jesus, would you go handle this for me? I want to be close to you. So that's when we've got to close. We don't rebuke him by shouting. I, I just um, I have this picture in my mind of the devil just laughing at us every time we try to rebuke him. I bind you in the name of Jesus. There's no magic in the name of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus. It's what the name represents in Scripture. So don't rebuke lies and demon spirits. Just take those thoughts captive. Make them obedient to Christ. If you're tempted to do something you know you shouldn't do, make it. Take it captive. Make it obedient. I'm not going to do this because I love you, Jesus. And then let Jesus fight the lying spirits that are trying to tempt you. But you don't go around rebuking demons at all, Rose. Don't even talk to the enemy. Don't spend one minute you could be talking to Jesus, talking to the enemy. Uh, I'm sorry for your friend who attempted suicide after bullying. I think a lot of us, and this is going to sound insensitive to some of you, I trust now, at least by now, you, you know my heart, at least to some extent. Uh, we need to be tougher than these things. For somebody to attempt suicide because they were bullied indicates that their walk with Jesus is not where it ought to be. I mean, Jesus was, we would say, bullied. Jesus was called all kinds of names. Jesus was made an outcast. He promised that that was going to happen to us because it happened to him. A servant is not greater than the master. So this is something, Rose, that we need to be very, very clear on. There's all kinds of bad things that are going to happen. There's all kinds of really bad people who are going to do bad things and they're going to make us feel terrible. But we have become such an oversensitized group 
and it shouldn't be in the church, that the minute our feelings are hurt, we spiral into discouragement or depression, and then the enemy's going to be right there to pounce. Again, Rose, I'm going to talk about suicide tonight. You can watch it at calvarysa.com, or if you're in the area not too far away, come and join us. You'll meet some of the most wonderful people in the world here tonight at 7 o'clock. We're getting to the end of the program. Um, Here's a quick one I can do from Patrice. She says, does God recognize a marriage if it's not performed in a church? Of course he does. Um, God recognizes uh, marriages all the time, marriages on ships, marriages in courtrooms, uh, marriages by Justice of the Peace, my goodness, even marriages in Las Vegas done by Elvis impersonators. Uh, As long as it's a licensed person, the institution of marriage is what's blessed by God, it's not the place. Now, Patrice, I feel very strongly about what I'm going to say now. I think Christians ought to be married at their church. Now, we got this tacky, ugly church, but some of our best moments over our 20, almost three years here have been in marriages. This is where people want to be married. I realize we got pictures of our, in our mind from the time we're little of these big church weddings. Um, but, you know, church is where the family is. And that's the best place for a believer to be married in their church by someone they know. So yes, God does recognize a marriage if it's not done in a church, but being done in church is a good thing. Hey, we're at the end of the program. Time went fast today. Thank you for your calls and questions. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Them for Life. Remember that Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Day Day Edition of the program on AM 630 KSLR at 4 o'clock. We will see you there. May the Lord bless you and keep you in the meantime. Pray for us. We'll pray for you. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.